Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. The podcast you're about to hear is true. Names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to another edition of The Racket Report. I'm Frank Morano. It has been our goal on this podcast to help educate people about some aspects of organized crime that you might not have thought of and to provide a little bit of illumination on some organized crime figures that you may be familiar with. Now, one of the best known organized crime figures of the 20th century was Vincent Giganti called the chin or chin by the media, by mobsters and just about everybody that knew him. And I've read a great deal about Vinny Giganti. However, there has never been a more comprehensive chronology of the life and crimes of mafia boss Vincent Giganti than the one that was written a few years ago by Larry McShane called simply Chin, the life and crimes of mafia boss Vincent Giganti, and I am just thrilled that Larry's agreed to spend some time with us here on the Racket Report. Larry, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Really appreciate it, Frank. So, uh, Larry, I think most people know, even if they don't follow organized crime news or crime news in general, they know two things about Vinny Giganti. Might be some people listening to us that don't know anything about him, but the two things they know are that he ran around Greenwich Village in a bathrobe, and they know that he was a high-ranking mobster. Before we get into his life, before we get into his legacy, before we get into the kind of crimes that he committed and how he rose up the hierarchy of La Cosa Nostra. Tell me about your decision to write about him. You came out with your book, Chin, in 2016. He'd already been dead a few years at that point. What drove you to spend so much time, and anybody that reads this book can tell the amount of time that you spent working on it. What drove you to spend so much time putting this book together? Well, I mean, the first thing, it'll sound a little funny, but it's true. I was sort of astounded that nobody had written one about him already, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, because it's, it's, it's just such an interesting life. And I think it's, it's far different uh, than the typical organized crime biography would be. Um, just given that he straddled the old school and the new school, you know, he was a, a guy who was a contemporary of, of Vito Genovese and John Gotti, you know, decades apart. Uh, and then, of course, there's other layers to it. I, there's so many layers to the Giganti story, you know, the uh, the crazy dodge, the crazy act on the streets of Greenwich Village, uh, you know, a wife and a mistress, both named Olympia, um, you know, the way he was able to frustrate uh, the FBI and and to some degree with the help of his neighbors on Sullivan Street in the village you know there was a famous story about how the, the FBI came in and put an observation tower on top of one of the uh, one of the apartment buildings 
so they could set up to take photographs of, of Chin when he walked the street down below. And when they came back the, the next day, you know, the neighbors had just smashed it to bits. <laughs> so, you know, there's just a lot of stuff about him and his story that I thought were very different and, uh, you know, definitely not stuff you would you would hear about. I don't think about any other mobster in the history of New York. Uh, that is that is for sure. Now, the amount of uh, access that you had to p- people that knew Giganti is is really extraordinary. Now, uh, it, one of the things that uh, has surrounded the myth of Vincent Giganti is that very nickname that he has had his whole life, Chin. It is Chin, not the Chin. I'm always corrected whenever I accidentally say the Chin rather than. Chin. About 10 years ago, I interviewed his daughter, Rita, and I asked her about the nature of that nickname and why her father was called Chin. This is what she said. When he was a child, uh, my of course, his name in Italian is Vincenzo, right? My grandmother used to call him, you know, like from the door or from the window or something. She used to shorten his name to Chinzy, and then it got shortened even more to Chin. And then it just stuck. Then his friends started calling him that, and the people in the neighborhood started calling him that. But really, um, it was it was kind of a it, like we do with all Italian names. My name is Rita, but they call me Ray. You know, uh, even a four-letter word they'll shorten. So that's how it began, and that's how it stuck. Uh, based on what you could see, Larry, did everybody call him Chin, or were there some people that called him by his Christian name, Vincent, or something else? Well, his brother, uh, the priest, Father Giganti, uh, would refer to him as Vincent and did. Um, you know, I had a few opportunities to, to speak with him for the book. Um, that was one of the first big interviews uh, that I did. I actually sat down and had breakfast with him. And uh, he told a story very similar to the one that uh, that Rita Giganti told. He, he said it was uh, their mother who used to just uh, refer to him as uh, Chinzino, and then it kind of shrunk, 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 and just became Chin. I want to get back to that aspect of his relationship with his brother, Father Louis Giganti, because that's one right. of the more intriguing things in his his life. But uh, let's talk about uh, Vinny Giganti as a mafioso. He eventually rose to become the boss of the Genovese crime family. Now, the namesake of the Genovese crime family is Vito Genovese. Uh, some people say Vito Genovese is one of the bases for the uh, character of Vito Corleone in The Godfather, but whether he was or not, certainly one of the highest-ranking, best-known mobsters of the 20th century as well. You describe in your book a rather incredible scene in which Vincent Giganti actually um, had some early interactions with Vito Genovese which weren't necessarily positive. What was the nature of Vinnie Giganti Gigante's relationship with Vito Genovese. Well, you know, he was a he. The Chin was was a kid in the neighborhood, and uh, you know, at that point, the other guy is is what Mister Gigante aspires to, right? He's an up and coming gangster, so uh, you know, I think it was kind of natural that uh, that the Chin would be a, a, attracted to. Uh, to Genovese, you know what I mean? It was sort of a natural, for a guy on that career path, it was sort of a natural way to go. 
and uh, there was how did how did Vinny Giganti get involved in the in the world of organized crime? Basically, it was just something that uh, it was actually a bit of a family business. Other other than the, the priest, Father Louis, you know, he had three other brothers who were all to some degree involved in organized crime. Um, you know, as as Father Louis described it. You know, these guys were in the neighborhood, these these mob guys. You know, the village at that time was a very heavily Italian, Italian-American uh, neighborhood. And, you know, there were certain kids that were very attracted to that, you know, like like the other Giganti brothers and, and uh, Vincent Giganti. And, you know, their family's a perfect illustration because then, you know, Father Louis goes to Georgetown where he's a big basketball player on the university team and he comes back to uh to new york and he becomes a a parish priest Uh, a lot of folks may also know the name frank costello Uh, he was a longtime mafia boss sometimes called the prime minister of the mafia and um vincent giganti back in the 1950s you describe was actually the shooter in a failed assassination of frank costello what went on there why was vincent giganti in a position to uh, try and shoot at or, or actually shoot at frank costello what happened yeah there was friction at the time between uh Vito Genovese and and Costello. Costello was the guy who was running the family at the time. Vito Genovese was looking to uh, to make his move, as they say in the parlance. And uh, so they he he and uh, as we were discussing before, he and Chin had a relationship from the old neighborhood. So uh, he recruited Chin to uh, to do this hit, and uh, it was going to be done in the lobby of uh, of Costello's building on. Central Park West and 72nd Street. And uh, there's a whole backstory where uh, they had Giganti basically kind of stuff himself and eat, 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 so that he would be about 300 pounds uh, when the shooting occurred, with the idea being that he would get away, head upstate to a fat farm. And so at least if he came back and was arrested, he would look like a completely different guy. Of course, this is... (laughs) This is no videotape or anything, you know. The, the case basically boiled down to uh, a guy who was who was the doorman. But um, but yeah, so so Giganti goes uh, goes in there. He he gets the drop on Costello, and then does what uh, no hitman should ever do. He announces his presence by saying, "This one's for you, Frank," and pulling the trigger. And uh, Costello turns and sees him. And, you know, whether by the uh, divine intervention or quick reflexes, he just takes a graze wound to the head. And uh, Giganti heads out. And uh, then, as, as I mentioned, he heads uh, to hide out in upstate New York while this manhunt goes on for him. And this was in, uh, you know, I pulled old clips from the Daily News. You know, there was a story in the paper like every day about about this, you know, unsolved mob hit. Um, and, and, you know, Costello rather famously uh, throughout the whole process was uh, pleasant but non-cooperative with the uh, NYPD investigators. 
What before we get to Costello and what yeah. he told the investigators, did Giganti's plan to come back as a suddenly slimmer would-be assassin did that work? Was he less recognizable to eyewitnesses because of weight loss? Well, I mean, all I can see is the pictures. You know, this is all before I was born. But he looks—he uh, looks noticeably different. Yes, he was uh, much fatter in the face, and uh, yeah. So, I mean, to some degree, it worked. To, to a guy looking at it fifty years later, he certainly looked a lot different. Um, but but when it came to the trial, the way he looked meant a lot less than Frank Costello, who obviously knew who he was being uh, unwilling to identify him from the witness stand. So what exactly did Frank Costello say about the identity of his assassin? Couldn't pick him out. You know, this is a, he's called as, I mean, he's, well, he's the biggest witness in the trial, or the best known witness. Um, And, uh, you know, Giganti's in the courtroom, uh, and he will not, identify him as as the shooter from the witness stand. Short and sweet. Uh, Needless to say, Giganti wasn't convicted. That is correct, yes. He walked on that one, and uh, and yeah, and and obviously the the message was delivered because uh, Vito Genovese was in fairly short order installed as, as the head of the crime family. And then after that incident, after Vinny Chin Giganti shoots Frank Costello, tries to kill him, and after Frank Costello does not identify him in court, resulting in the acquittal of Vincent Giganti, what was the nature of that relationship, the relationship between Giganti and Frank Costello? Were they friendly? Were they rivals? Did Frank Costello seek any sort of retribution on Giganti? I, I think this is in the book, if I recall correctly. Giganti thanked him in the courtroom as he as he got off the witness stand. Um, you know, so there's that. And then uh, I don't think there was any sort of. I mean, I don't believe they were friendly to begin with. They sort of moved in different circles. You know, Costello at that point was, you know, as you said, sort of the cream of the crop. Among uh, among the bosses and, and regarded as as you mentioned the prime minister of organized crime, you know, and and the chin was a, a guy working as a capo for a for another guy who's an underling, so he was a couple of spots removed. Um, but apparently, they also crossed paths at uh, at a dinner party years later, and uh, no animosity from from Costello, I think. Like a lot of these guys, he realized that, um, you know, what's the line from The Godfather? This is the business we have chosen, you know? It is wild. It's difficult for a lot of us to imagine. So, uh, Vinny Giganti, a capo in what was the Genovese crime family, he ends up rising through the ranks pretty quickly in the 60s and 70s. Well, what do you attribute that to, the manner in which he was promoted to eventually become the boss of the family? Uh, he was a guy who had a very, very good reputation uh, among the rank and file. Uh, you know, highly regarded. Uh, I think he was viewed as as an up and comer. Um, you know, he he did his. He, he wound up going to jail, uh, as did Vito Genovese, in some sort of. Uh, 
maybe not completely legit prosecution for uh, for drug dealing. Uh, Giganti for decades, uh, you know, there, there were interviews when he was first sent to prison on this drug charge. And he was adamant that he was framed. I mean, beyond what you would expect a guy to say, like, you know, hey, I was framed. I mean, like, very insistent. Um, and, you know, of course, he did his time and he came out and he came back. And, uh, you know, again, he, he was regarded well by the guys in his crew. And I think by the people above him, he was viewed as, as a real up and comer. Do you have any idea around this time, um, late 70s, early 80s, what kind of money a guy like, uh, obviously there's no way to know for sure, but do you have any estimate of what kind of money Vinny Giganti is earning through these illicit activities at this point? Well, I mean, the great thing about that question is, like, if if you looked at the guy, <laughs> you know, you would think <laughs> he's homeless. he was making $5 an hour. Yeah, exactly, you know? Um, he he never had any of the trappings, you know, like we just mentioned Costello living at 72nd and Central Park West in this nice apartment overlooking the park. You know, uh, Giganti lived on, on Sullivan Street. I mean, he basically lived his entire life in Greenwich Village. Uh, you know, he didn't have a, a car or, uh, you know, his his base of operations uh, was a hole in the wall down there, uh, right? The Triangle Social Club on, on Sullivan Street. Uh, you know, as he got older, he was living with his mother, you know, and, and as Gotti became kind of the glamour guy running around on the Upper East Side at night and uh, holding court at the Ravenite as the FBI was taking a million pictures. You know, the chin was 180 degrees the opposite way. There were... There were no trappings of of any of of the financial success that came with it. Now that said, uh, when his when his son with Olympia Giganti, who was Vincent, uh, was arrested in a union case, a uh, corruption case, they went into the apartment that he shared with his mother, Chin's mistress, and they found four million dollars cash inside the apartment. Well, I mean, it seems a shame to earn all that money just to let it collect dust. I, I always wondered, because I'd see him be disheveled and carry on, carry on in the manner in which he did. I, I know it's expensive to have a wife, children, let alone a mistress and right. a, a large family like this, and I'm sure he had lengthy, a lot of legal bills, but I always wondered what this guy spent his money on. Uh, Henry Hill said, you know, he spent his whole life to, to go and become the boss and then never leave a 12-block area. It made no sense to him, you know what I mean? Uh, now, uh, so he becomes the boss in 1981. Uh, right. Now, uh, the, apparently, the the supposed boss of the Genovese crime family was actually Tony Salerno. Uh, Tony Salerno, or Fat Tony, uh, represented by Roy Cohn, prosecuted by the government as being the boss of the Genovese crime family. Was that common in the mafia at that time, from what you could tell, Larry? Whereas one person was actually the boss, and then one person was sort of masquerading as the boss so that they could take the heat from prosecutors, it was a it was a thing that was fairly common within the Genovese family for sure. And uh, you know, you mentioned Salerno. The uh, commission indictments came up 
after he was taken down, as they would say in Giganti, bumped up. And, you know, in 85, before that case where the, the heads of the five families were all going to be prosecuted simultaneously by uh, Rudy Giuliani, then the U.S. attorney in Manhattan, you know, Giganti was nervous that it was going to be his name in the slot for the Genovese family, but it wound up being uh, Salerno, uh, you know, and another good old guy who, you know, never opened his mouth and went into trial and died in prison. So he went to prison for being the boss of the Genovese family when we now know that he wasn't the boss of the Genovese family, meaning Tony Salerno. Yeah, he was the boss removed by four years, according to um, a guy named Fish Cafaro, who testified to all this before the U.S. Senate. It's pretty wild uh, that that happened. So at least for a while, this idea to have Fat Tony uh, be the boss publicly anyway, I guess as public as any secret organization is, that plan worked to help Giganti avoid prosecution. Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know they, you know the other guys all went right. Castellano uh, and the other families as well. Their their bosses were all indicted, and uh, of course everybody got convicted. Couple under bosses as well, um, and some and, like Castellano met a much more unceremonious yeah. end. Yes, exactly. Uh, you alluded to John Gotti, uh, certainly one of the more high-profile gangsters of the 1980s and 1990s, very out front. He was not uh, looking disheveled. There was not a hair out of place on uh, John Gotti. What was the nature of the relationship between uh, Vincent Giganti, the boss of the Genovese family, and John Gotti, the boss of the Gambino family? How did they interact professionally? How did they interact personally? Well, I mean, they, they get off on a bad foot immediately, right? Uh, Paul Castellano is is Vincent Giganti's peer on the commission. You know, he's one of the five heads of the five families who are making all the decisions on different things within the organized crime world in New York. And uh, he is not, Giganti is not approached and told about this and asked to sanction it. So he's immediately... Uh, Unhappy, I think, would be a gentle way of putting it. You know, he's angry that that this has happened on his watch without anybody letting him know. Uh, you know, he and Castellano were both of of that generation ahead of Gotti's. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, they had ties to a lot of uh, the older folks, uh, people from Italy, as opposed to the more Americanized version of the mafia as it developed. Uh, so, so right away, you know, the arrival of of Gotti is not a good thing in the eyes of of Giganti, and uh, so Chin immediately fires back. Uh, he gets gas pipe Casso, uh, head of another family, to put a car bomb on uh, Frankie DeChico who was uh, Gotti's underboss. He's blown up uh, outside a social club. Uh, there's another hit, hit made uh, on Bobby Borriello, who was Gotti's chauffeur. Uh, he was killed in the driveway of his home. And, uh, and the third move that, that Giganti made in, in payback for this, uh, one of the shooters uh, outside Sparks Steakhouse, Eddie Lino, 
was also shot and killed uh, in his case by uh, Kara Kappa and, uh, of course, I'm blanking on the other guy's name. Oh, uh, Louis Epolito. Yeah, Epolito and Kara Kappa, the two mafia cops, uh, pull him over on the Belt Parkway and, and just whack him on the side of the road. Uh, there were discussions also within the uh, the Genovese family about killing John and Gene Gotti, uh, John's brother, Gene. Um, and there's some great, if you can ever find it online, there's some great audio. Uh, the plotting was being done over in New Jersey um, by the family consigliere, and uh, they're, they're hiding in a bathroom having these discussions. Uh, it's just some really entertaining stuff. Bobby Mana was uh, was the guy who was putting things together. Uh, and and the, the back and forth is just really something. Uh, but, but yeah, there, there's no question that if they could have figured out a way to get to John Gotti, which, which you know, is kind of a, a triple problem because the FBI is always around him. Uh, his own family is always around him, and he's constantly out in public. Right, right. So, so how do you get at the guy? You know what I mean. So, was there ever a um, a recompense between John Gotti and Vincent Giganti, or did both men go to prison at loggerheads with one another? Was the only reason that John Gotti was never killed by Giganti was because the the feds got him before Vinnie Giganti could? Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Maybe yes, maybe no, but I mean, they definitely, uh, before Gotti went away, um, were together at 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 least one commission meeting. Um, which is in the book as well. And there's an exchange between the two of them where, where uh, Gotti like very proudly says uh, that John Jr. Has, has just become a made guy. And uh, Giganti's answer is, geez, that's too bad. You know, like, you would let your kid get into this business. He should mm. be doing better, you know mm. what I mean? Which, of course... Ironically, when when Giganti gets convicted the second time, uh, his son is convicted right along. His son Andrew is convicted right alongside him. You know, right. So he was doing the same thing that he was at least yes. privately admonishing he, John Gotti for. Well, to to Gotti's face, he said this. You know, that's too bad. And uh, then when he went into jail, you know, now all of a sudden he's got logistics. How are we going to get the messages out? The son is willing to do this, and so he gets involved in things. Uh, yeah, you know, exigent so, circumstances, I guess. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the second best known thing that uh, Giganti is probably known for, and that is running around Greenwich Village in a bathrobe. <laughs> uh, Acting crazy. Vinny the Chin Gigante. He's said to be one of the most powerful mobsters in America. His lawyers say he's insane, but it appears Gigante will finally be brought to justice. While the judge's opinion is still sealed, FBI agents are making contingency plans to rearrest Gigante on charges he's been able to sidestep by using his mental illness, an illness that prosecutors have claimed is an act. It's worked for him for 20 years. Hopefully it's not going to work for him 
much longer. Giganti has been able to avoid going to trial because a host of psychiatrists have testified that the wan figure who stares blankly and wanders the streets in a blue bathrobe was mentally disabled. But a host of mob informers, including Sammy the Bull Gravano, have said that they had regular dealings with the Chin as a mob boss. He was meeting late at night in garages and in social clubs and in limos and on the street and giving orders, giving orders to run the family, to commit murders on behalf of the family. Someday soon, Mr. Giganti will be in a court of law and he'll have to answer the charges against him. Uh, how much of an act has still been a subject of debate and was a subject of debate for many years? Your book, you make no bones about the fact that uh, this whole routine of masquerading as a schizophrenic as a schizophrenic was just that. It was a masquerade. And in my uh, discussion with Rita Giganti, she essentially has said the same thing. And ultimately, even uh, Chin himself admitted that it was a masquerade. So there's very little doubt that he was not crazy, that he was pretending to be crazy, right? Oh, yeah. I I mean, John Pritchard, who who was the head of the uh, Genevieve squad for the FBI, was quite proud of saying, like, I was the first guy who said it crazy as a fox. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I mean, it it was. uh, Yeah, I mean, it was it was a whole production. You know, um, I remember when. The Times put a picture of him on the front page in maybe the mid '80s, you know, of, of him wandering up Sullivan Street, and often with with Father Louis at his side. You know, he would be stopping and talking to parking meters. I mean, it was it was a whole production, really. You know what I mean? And he invested a lot of time. Wardrobe, right? Always a big floppy hat and a bathrobe and slippers, no matter summer, fall, winter, spring. Um, and, and, you know, it worked, it worked for a long time, you know, it, it really did, uh, How did that get started that, I mean, that routine to pretend to be crazy to avoid going to prison? He was on trial in, uh, old Japan, New Jersey, where he briefly lived with, with, uh, his wife and, and kids. And, uh, it's it's sort of a long and involved story, but to make it short, he was uh, he was charged with uh, with bribing the entire police force in Old Japan, which I think was six six cops. And uh, in the middle of the trial, and it's you know maybe he was feeling nervous, maybe he was feeling anxious. I don't know, but he checks into uh, into the hospital for treatment of uh, you know a mental illness or you know angst, whatever. And, uh, he comes out and, uh, you know, they're allowed to delay the trial a little bit and it's a nice break. And I think he realizes like, Hey, I might be onto something here. You know what I mean? Uh, and so he went back to this same facility in Westchester County. I believe the number is 27 times over the year. It became like a, a vacation almost, you know what I mean? Like you or I might go down the Jersey Shore. Sure, sure. He would go up to Westchester County and spend, you know, 8, 12, 14 days up there, uh, recharge his batteries, 
keep the uh, mental health ruse going and then come back to work. So you mentioned that the the FBI agent tasked with uh, following the Genovese family was not fooled by this. Who was fooled by it? Clearly many in the press were. Who was taken in by this ruse of pretending to be crazy? Oh, I, you know, I don't think anybody was. If, if you were in organized crime, like you were you were basically forbidden from even mentioning his name, much less saying you thought that the crazy act was, was an act. You know what I mean? Like guys were told to, to not, if you were speaking of him, what you were to do was not speak, touch your chin to indicate that you were speaking about chin giganti. So, I mean, yeah, in, in the annals of organized crime, nobody was saying anything about it. Uh, and I think, you know, by the time Pritchard got in, which would have been, I guess, mid-80s, I, after, after Salerno went away to prison, there was more attention paid to Gotti. But, but you know, Pritchard with the, with the Genovese squad, you know, said they knew pretty quickly what they were dealing with. You know, he, this was a guy who had a history and a reputation, you know, and and... He's at this social club every day, which is filled with the top echelon guys from the Genovese family coming and going. FBI surveillance, I think, you know, would have convinced him in two days what was going on. So how long did he try to carry this ruse on for? Or was it something you said he would check in to sort of recharge his batteries, go on vacation to this mental health facility in Westchester? Was there a a time where he was unabashedly acting like a delusional schizophrenic? Or would he go in and out uh, from between between acting like a bumbling buffoon, for lack of a better description, and a normal human being? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like, for example, when he was hospitalized, uh, you know, he would have guys from the family come in for business meetings, you know. And if he was on the streets in Greenwich Village, uh, the act ended once he went inside the the, the social club, mm. you know. Uh, you know, there's a place for everything. And, uh, you know, if he was in a place where he felt safe, I mean, the the triangle his social club was routinely swept for bugs and uh you know there's a sign on the wall that said loose lips sink ships um he was uh very 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 uh worried about electronic surveillance which you know was really still in its sort of early stages in in the 80s right Yeah, exactly. No, it was a a very new thing, and uh, it certainly wasn't the kind of technology that they they have today. Now, uh, you've mentioned a couple of times Father Louis Giganti. I have always just been so incredibly fascinated at the relationship between these two, almost like the relationship uh, between Whitey Bulger in Massachusetts and his brother, who became the most powerful politician in Massachusetts. Here you had a very respected priest up in the Bronx, 
Bronx, who became a city council member, ran right. for Congress, uh, was very involved in not only the Catholic Church, but a wide variety of other charities. And you have his brother, who some people say was the most popular, most powerful gangster in the entire country. What do we know about their relationship with one another? And uh, how did you get Father Giganti to speak with you for this book? He does very few interviews these days. Yeah, it's funny when when I got uh, when I got the deal to do the book, I just thought that he was the first person I should reach out to. Uh, I didn't have super high expectations. You know, I'd seen him at the courthouse, you know, cross paths like that, but I had never actually spoken with him about anything. And uh, so I just cold called him. Uh, you know, he was living in the village at that time. And, uh, you know, he, he agreed to meet with me. And uh, we met at this little Italian pastry place across from, from where he was living. And uh, I, he couldn't have been nicer, you know, gave me plenty of time, answered all my questions. Uh, you know, I, I think somewhat surprisingly, he uh, he admitted that, you know, the whole uh mental health thing was a, was a dodge, which I don't think he'd ever said before. And, uh, that was when I picked up my tape recorder to make sure it was still running. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, but yeah, uh, he, he couldn't have been nicer about anything. And then, uh, you know, as you mentioned, he was a, he was a really prominent guy, you know and I mean? Even, even when he was in college, you know, he was a, a member of the basketball team at Georgetown University. And uh, he came back and played in the Garden, I believe, with Georgetown. You know, and then he, he got up in the Bronx and he was very well known in the parish. And then he started uh, Sebco, you know, putting up his own buildings. And, uh, and then he became, as you mentioned, you know, a city council member. Uh, you know, he mentioned I, at one point that, you know, they were trying to get him to run for mayor, but he had no interest in that. Um, and, and, you know, we're saying all this stuff and we're not even mentioning really. He's a Catholic priest. <laughs> right, right. Uh, exactly. And, uh, you know, he's been involved in some other controversies lately. There have been some other allegations uh, towards him. But he was uh, pretty highly regarded in the community, uh, especially while his brother was a gangster. So as far as their relationship with one another, it doesn't sound like they were estranged at all, were they? Oh, no, not at all. They they were very close and... Uh... I mean, Father Giganti was, I mean, particularly the trial, I remember the the, the 97 trial where, where Chin was convicted of racketeering, you know, it was not unusual to see Father Giganti, you know, wheeling his brother into the courthouse. And uh, you would see him outside the courtroom in the hallways all the time. Uh, so, yeah, they, they were very close. Um, Father Giganti was, was uh, the youngest of the brothers, so... Might have been a little big brother, little brother thing, maybe. You mentioned the 1997 trial. I know there were uh, other indictments. How did it all come crashing down for him? I know Vincent Giganti died in prison. What was the case that finally uh, did him in? And uh, what was the sort of smoking gun prosecutorially? Yeah, in in 2003, uh, that was when... Uh, he took the plea and acknowledged that, uh, well, he was accused of running the family from, 
the Genovese family from prison. I believe he was in Texas at the time. And uh, the deal was that he would he would have to come in and he would have to acknowledge that, you know, one, there was no mental health issue. And uh, two, yes, indeed, he was the head of the Genovese crime family and had been running it from prison, you know. Uh, and they, at that point, they had flipped somebody else in the family. Uh, you know, it was it was probably not the, uh, for lack of a better term, star power of the witnesses that they had at the first one with uh, little Al DiArco and, uh, and uh, you know, Sammy the Bull. But, but, you know, they had a very, very good case against him. And, uh, you know, and he took the plea. And then his son came in right, right after him. Uh, to take his plea. And there was a, a moment in court after Giganti had had pled out, but before his son came in, where the two of them were allowed to just sit in the well of the courtroom. And, uh, I mean, I just remember it, was, it, it just looked like any father talking to his son in a difficult situation. You know what I mean? Uh, oh. And that's the last time I ever saw him. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was something else. I'll just give you one other quick story from the courtroom. Uh, George Stambolidis, who prosecuted him the first time, uh, 97 in the racketeering, the big racketeering case. Uh, one of Giganti's uh, health issues was supposedly a leg tremor. So during court, Giganti would have his left leg shaking underneath the table, uh, the defense table. So one day Stambolidis comes in. And he notices Giganti is shaking his right leg under the table. And he says to him, says to him, hey, hey, wrong leg, wrong leg. And he said, Giganti never changed his facial expression, just stopped with the right and went right back to the left. Leg. That's, that's wild. That's wild. Yeah. One of the things that we have heard occasionally from uh, mobsters, uh, especially people that have been cooperating witnesses, uh, people that have written tell-all books and, and others, is, look, we all know there's a lot of bravado in the world of the mafia. There's a lot of uh, the, the pressure to be a tough guy. And when you m- masquerade as someone that's mentally ill to avoid getting caught, that's almost the opposite of being a, a tough guy. I'm wondering whether it was within the Genovese family or among other mafia families, how was this ruse and this behavior viewed by other gangsters? Were there other gangsters that thought less of him for engaging in this kind of conduct? I don't believe so. Uh, by all accounts, he was you know, really highly regarded both inside and outside the family. Um, I mean, certainly inside the family, you know, and we, we discussed before, nobody was, was even talking about it, you know, and and I don't mean just in front of him. I mean, it was the kind of thing that like, you wouldn't talk to the guy that you were with because you were afraid it would get back to Jacanti. You know, that's, that's, that's the level of, Power for one thing, but also I think respect that he commanded among uh, among the guys who were in his family. 
Did he have any sort of a reputation as boss of the Genovese family? You know, Joe Colombo, when he was head of the Colombo crime family, I think a lot of his legacy was defined by his work with the Italian-American Civil Rights League. John Gotti was known as the Dapper Don, the toast of the town. Uh, Other people like uh, Carlo Gambino have a reputation for the way they presided over a mafia family. What is or what was uh, Vincent Giganti's reputation as a mob boss? Uh, Very well liked by the rank and file. Um, You know, as evidenced, I think, by the lifestyle he led. Money was not his great motivator. Um, He was regarded as a pretty generous guy, although uh, he was also known as a guy that was apparently a running card game that went on inside their social club, and he was known for never losing a hand over there. You know what I mean? I can imagine. Yeah, uh, but yeah, no, he was very high, highly regarded. Uh, apparently, made sure his guys got paid, uh, and you know, I think that that level of respect was not only within his own family but across the five families. In terms of prison life. For Vincent Giganti, uh, we've seen some mobsters that are able to conduct mob business behind prison walls. Others have a much tougher time because of increased government scrutiny. What was prison life like for Vinny Giganti as far as you know? And was he still able to be the boss of the Genovese family operationally behind prison walls? Yeah, he was able to do it, um, you know, which which is what led ultimately to his, his second trial and, and his guilty plea. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think he was in North Carolina initially, and then he wound up in Texas. So, you know, it, it's, it becomes a difficult thing and it's not as, it's not as simple to hide as, as it once was by putting on a, you know, a bathrobe and a pair of slippers. Um, you know, now you have people coming in and, and his son was one of them to, uh, Ferry messages back to New York. Uh, his prison phone calls were monitored. So there was some stuff that was pulled from the tapes, uh, which is, you know, for a guy that at one point didn't want his name mentioned aloud by anyone to be speaking of stuff on the phone was, uh, you know, a dramatic, dramatic shift. Uh, but circumstances, right? Uh, What what are you going to do? If he's going to be running the family, which he was, uh, you know, there's got to be a way to get the messages back and forth and, and, you know, there's scrutiny because of this and, and again, they're listening in on the phone calls from prison, so you know, it almost seemed inevitable by his not giving up the throne that the attention was going to continue, and and ultimately it, it did, and and that was uh, that was what put him behind bars until he passed away. And finally, Larry, and we've been talking with Larry McShane. Uh, even though the book is a few years old, the book Chin: The Life and Crimes of uh, Mafia Boss Vincent Giganti is still worth reading. Uh, we didn't even scratch the surface of a lot of the anecdotes, a lot of the stories, a lot of the research, a lot of the interviews that are in this book, a lot of primary sources. A really a terrific book that I highly recommend. Men. But do we know much about, you alluded a couple of times in our conversation to 
uh, Giganti's son, Andrew, who was uh, in part of that uh, that last indictment. Do we know uh, what became of any of Giganti's other relatives, whether it's Andrew specifically or other relatives that might have been alleged to have been a part of organized crime? Yeah, I know Andrew did some prison time. We talked about um, Vincent Esposito, uh, who wound up going to jail as well. And and you mentioned Rita. It's funny. I, I had a chance to uh, interview her when her book came out, and uh, she was just terrific, too. You know, lots of fun, lots of good stories. In fact, one quick anecdote involving Rita. I asked her about the moment that she first learned that her father was in the mafia. This is what she had to say on that subject. When did you realize that your dad was not just in the mafia, but the head of the mafia? I was 16 years old, and I learned not just that, but like you said, the enormity of uh, who he was. But I have to tell you, when I, there was part relief to that because of so many unanswered questions in my mind that, as the book says, it just like pieces of the puzzle snapped into place. It was like... Okay, this is why this, this is why that. Mm -hmm. And then I started to realize why the life went the way it did and why the the secrets and the whispers and all that kind of stuff. So partly it was relief because I didn't know. And and I had so many questions. And the other part was, holy s***. This is wild. And, then, and of course, a whole mixture of emotions came with that. Certainly, uh, her book's worth reading as well, although it's told from a, a much less uh, analytical perspective than, uh, than yours is. Uh, Larry, thanks so much for the time. I look forward to our next conversation. Frank, thank you so much for having me. Have a, have a great week, weekend, year. Thank you very much, Larry McShane. The book is Chin. If you like this podcast, please share it. Please subscribe to it. Please encourage friends to do so as well. You could check out previous editions of The Racket Report at wabcradio.com. That's wabcradio.com. I'm Frank Moreno. This is The Racket Report. Until we meet again in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio. can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all-natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.